Let's begin with prayer. Father in heaven, we pray today that your spirit will be with us, that you'll speak to us on the subject of believing. And what does it take for us to believe? Speak to our hearts. We want to live in faith and confidence. We want to be sure. Help us, Lord, today as we, as we wrestle with this text. In Jesus' name, amen. So I want to go right to the text today, to uh, John chapter 4, beginning in verse 43. So we're picking up. We've been talking out of the book of John and, and, and dealing with several of the stories that come along here. And actually, right now, we're picking up a couple of the loose ends, a couple pieces, a couple passages that often we don't pay as much attention to, but they're very important to the whole point that John is making. So John chapter 4, beginning in verse 43, now af after the two days... He left for Galilee. Now Jesus himself had pointed out that a prophet has no honor in his own country. When he arrived in Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him. They had seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the Passover festival, for they also had been there. So two simple little verses here, actually three simple little verses here. And you'd be inclined to just kind of blow by them and not realize this is important information. It starts out by saying, after the two days, he left for Galilee. After which two days? What is this talking about? Well, it's after the two days that Jesus spent in Samaria. What was he doing in Samaria? Well, we talked about that story. Jesus was passing through Samaria on the way back to Galilee after the Passover festival. And it's there that he encounters the Samaritan woman at the well. And he spends two days with them, and they come to believe in him during that time. So, so now, after those two days, he's traveling back to Galilee. Now, there's a fascinating little parenthetical in there, verse 44. It says, now Jesus himself had pointed out that a prophet has no honor in his own country. This reality plays out at different times, and particularly in the context of the city of Nazareth. Because uh, in, in some of the other Gospels, it's related that Jesus is actually amazed by the lack of faith in him of the people of Nazareth. And it's easy for us to think, well, that's weird. Why would they not believe in him? Well, here's reality. He grew up there. And if you'd known Jesus from the time he was a little boy till he grew up, you might have thought there was something special about him. But more likely, you would have just thought he was another kid from the neighborhood. And now all of a sudden, here he is going off. Uh, being this big, this big uh, worker of miracles and all of these things. And you'd think, ah, come on, isn't, isn't that just the carpenter's son? Verse 45, when he arrived in Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him. They had seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the Passover festival, for they also had been there. This is also a significant little verse in that it touches on the reality of what it meant to live life as a Jew. You go back to the Old Testament and into the books of Moses, and there's the description of the festival times of the year and how it was the responsibility of everyone to go up to Jerusalem for the festival. So what we get in this little passage is that the people living in Galilee, even though it was a decent hike down there to Jerusalem, they were doing what they were supposed to do. They were going for the festivals and they'd been in Jerusalem, and they had seen what Jesus had done. Well, what was it Jesus had done? Specifically, the words is, they had seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the Passover. What had he done? 
Well, likely there was a miracle or two in, in one form or another, but we just recently talked a couple of weeks ago about the big event that Jesus did, the, the big thing that he did that really got everyone's attention, and that was when he went in and cleared the money changers and those who were selling animals out of the temple court. Part of what we're going to be wrestling with in this passage, and those who are in, in the context of this story are wrestling with is what does it take to believe in Jesus? And this we've seen is a theme that goes on throughout this book. What does it take to believe? And, and that's where it gets personal to each one of us. What does it take for you to believe in Jesus? So having set this context, Jesus on his way back, he had the experience with the Samaritans. Now he's back in Galilee Verse 46, once more he visited Cana in Galilee, where he had turned the water into wine. So now we're put back in the context of that first work that Jesus did when his disciples, seeing this miraculous uh, thing that took place, began to put their faith in him. And there was a certain royal official whose son lay sick at Capernaum. When this man heard that Jesus had arrived in Galilee from Judea, he went to him and begged him to come and heal his son who was close to death. So Jesus is in Cana. Capernaum is a little ways away. This man, referred to here as a royal official, heard that Jesus was close by. So he traveled to where Jesus was and begged him to come and heal his son who was close to death. Now, I want to do a little aside here because there's nothing specific in the biblical text itself that tells us details about this royal official. And in fact, if you were, uh, if you were th there was recently a, a video that was done uh, on the Gospel of John that's kind of a, a, acting it out, and, and it's pretty much word for word from the Gospel. In that context, this particular royal official is actually represented as being Roman. Now, there's nothing that says he is or says he isn't in this context. There are other stories similar to this where, where a Roman comes to Jesus, uh, it's fairly early in his ministry, and asks him to heal his servant. It's a similar story, but it's not an identical story. And so just specifically from the biblical text alone, it opens the door for some for an interesting reflection that I don't really think is, is central to this story, but it is an interesting reflection. And it goes like this. Jesus is in Jerusalem, and, and he does this great work of clearing the temple in Jerusalem. And then after this, the story says he went out into Judea, into the Judean countryside, where he was baptizing. And that's the context of when John the Baptist's disciples come to John and say, hey, that Jesus who you told us about, he's baptizing and everybody's going to him. So you have Jerusalem specifically mentioned, you have Judea specifically mentioned. And then after this comes the remarkable event that takes place in Samaria. So you have Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and then we have this story with this royal official. Now, what I find interesting in that is if you go to the book of Acts, Acts chapter 1, verses 7 and 8, this is Jesus after the whole story is done, and he's about to ascend into heaven. And it says, He said to them, It is not for you to know the times or dates the Father is set by his own authority, 
But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses. You've probably heard this passage before. In Jerusalem, all Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Now, it's interesting. If you look at the story of Jesus, he starts out his ministry, and he's impactful in Jerusalem, and then he's impactful in Judea, and then he's impactful in Samaria, and I like the symmetry notion that then he's going to be impactful to the ends of the earth. And this story, in one sense, if in fact this particular uh, royal official is not Jewish, then it kind of captures that symmetry in a beautiful way. And it, it kind of makes that point that Jesus is calling us to do what he had done. Now, why do I say that as an aside and, and not try to convince you that's where it was? Well, there's a couple reasons. One, the text itself doesn't tell us. So we can't be sure that this is actually a Gentile that Jesus is dealing with. So, so I don't want to make that point. But I do want to call your attention to this idea that Jesus is working in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria. The reality of what Jesus has come to do is an expanding, not a contracting circle. And there's another reason why I don't want to go down that road specifically. And, and that reason... Uh, is, is the way that Ellen White writes about this passage. And she writes specifically about this passage and makes the point specifically that this royal official was in fact a Jew. Now that's not something that comes specifically from the text. But she makes the point that it was a Jew. And, and to the end that I like where the point she makes goes, I want to go down that road instead of down the road of it being a Gentile. Because... There's something very interesting that she brings out of this story that is very much tied to the idea that this man was, in fact, a Jew. So verse 47 tells us that, that he has come to Jesus. And, well, let me read verse 47 again. When this man heard that Jesus had arrived in Galilee from Judea, he went to him and begged him to come and heal his son who was close to death. And then Jesus seemingly gives a very unusual response to the man. He says this, Unless you people see signs and wonders, Jesus told him, you will never believe. That seems like kind of a crazy response, doesn't it? Here's this man coming to Jesus because his child is about to die. And Jesus seemingly, it almost seems like he rolls his eyes. I, I, I don't think Jesus does that, but... But it, you kind of get that feeling, unless you people see signs and wonders, you'll never believe. Why would he answer that way? Well, we're really left without context for that within the story as it appears in John. But if you read this story in The Desire of Ages, Ellen White gives a context to this. And her context is this royal official is, is one of those uh, practicing Jews who thinks pretty highly of himself and of his own faith. He's heard about Jesus there is this reality with this son, but he doesn't really know if he believes in Jesus. And in fact, he comes to Jesus, according to Ellen White in this story, he comes to Jesus with the attitude that if you do what I'm asking, I will believe in you. Now, here's what I like about that. Here's why I think that's a very plausible reality in this story. For one thing, it explains Jesus' response. Because he's responding to the heart of the man. In fact, the man is not coming to him as one who already believes. He's coming to him in hopes that, in fact, there is something here. And if Jesus can work this miracle, he will believe. That makes sense of Jesus' response. 
because it cuts to the heart of where the man is coming from. Unless you people see signs and wonders, you will never believe. And if, in fact, this is what's taking place in this story, what takes place next makes a lot of sense. Because he is now going to be cut down to the base because suddenly he's confronted with this reality that, that I want my son to live and I'm not sure if Jesus is going to do this work or not. I'm not sure if I believe in him. He has that moment of crisis as to whether or not he believes. But there's another point to this. And again, Ellen White brings this out very well. She puts it in contrast to the immediately preceding story. This is the story of the Samaritans. Now, I want to take you back there briefly at this point. So you've had this encounter. The man comes to Jesus. He says, I, I would like for you to heal my son. And Jesus says, unless you see signs and wonders, you won't believe. Now, contrast that to what has just happened in Samaria. This is, again, John chapter 4, verse 39. Many of the Samaritans from that town believed in Jesus because of the woman's testimony. He told me everything I ever, I ever did. Well, that's kind of a sign or wonder. Jesus said to her, you remember the context, uh, you're right in saying you're not married. In fact, uh, you've had five husbands and the one you live with is not your husband. But that's really kind of the extent of the signs and wonders that Jesus has done here. And it goes on. So when the Samaritans came to Jesus, they urged him to stay with them, and he stayed two days. And because of his words, many more became believers. This is an important concept in the book of John. You see, the call here is to come to the conviction and to the belief that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. John told us, that's why I'm writing this book. And the ability to identify Jesus as this is important. But it's important to be able to identify based on the words, not just on the signs and wonders. Verse 42, they said to the woman, we no longer believe just because of what you said. Now we have heard for ourselves and we know that this man really is the Savior of the world. So the Samaritans have become believers in Jesus, not primarily by means of miracles and signs, but by listening to the words of Jesus. And if you, if you juxtapose that reality next to this story, which immediately follows it, of, of this uh, royal officer who comes to Jesus, and Jesus says, unless you people see signs and wonders, you will never believe it all kind of starts coming together that there's this frustration Jesus is experiencing with the Jews. And that takes us back to these first words. He says, Jesus himself pointed out that a prophet has no honor in his own country. So there's a lot going on here and going on behind the scenes. And, and so, so we have to ask that question of ourselves that the book of John is asking us, what does it take for you to believe? You remember John chapter 1. He came to his own, but his own received him not. But to all who believe, he gave the right to be the sons and daughters of God. And we can remember just, just back there in the encounter with Nicodemus in, in John chapter 3, verse 18, we get these words. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, 
But whoever does not believe stands condemned already because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. And we already mentioned John's whole point in the book is that you would believe Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. So here's that moment. Here's that crisis of belief moment. The official is standing in the presence of Jesus. And he has a great need. And the, and the disconnect between his need and the reality of that happening is centered in his ability to believe in Jesus. And so what happens here in this stark moment, verse 49, the royal official said, Sir, come down before my child dies. Now if it has in fact played out the way it plays out in the Desire of Ages, and that seems to be a very believable background and reality to this story, is that he has now confronted the reality that he's, he's come to Jesus thinking highly of himself and unsure about Jesus, but now Jesus has laid bare his intentions, and now he's confronting his own reality. Sir, come down before my child dies. I don't think there is any scenario that a parent ever faces that is more terrifying and cuts more deeply to the heart than when their child is at the point of life and death. And it brings about in that parent uh, a, a desperation to cry out to God. And, and, I, and I say this to you as someone who knows this experience. Now I'm not going to tell you this story today. And in fact, the person you want to have tell this story is my wife, Alicia. So, so after everything has been settled and we've got everything worked out and, and she's out here with us, we'll have her do that some Sabbath. But I want to tell you I've been to this spot. I've had this encounter with Jesus. It happened in the middle of the night when my second son, Nathan, was 14 years old. And I came into his room that night. You'll get context. You'll get the rest of it when Alicia tells you. But looking into his face as he lay on his bed with no discernible pulse rate and only taking occasional gasping breaths. You find out in that moment what you believe. And you cry out to the Lord, not just save him, but you cry out and say, Lord, what would you have me do? What do I do right now? It won't ruin the story for me to tell you what God said to me was do what you can. But that moment, have you known a moment like that in your life? Now you know this story has a happy ending because you know that the granddaughter we've been celebrating that was born in February is the daughter of Nathan. But Alicia will tell you this whole story. Let's go back to our text here. Verse 49, the royal official said, Sir, come down before my child dies. Verse 50, go, Jesus replied. Your son will live. Now notice these next words. The man took Jesus at his word and departed. 
Have you learned to take Jesus at his word? When Jesus says, go. Can you go believing? Have you learned to take him at his word? Or do you need a sign? Matthew chapter 12. Matthew chapter 12, verse 38, we find these words. Then some of the Pharisees and teachers of the law said to him, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. He answered, A wicked and adulterous generation asks for a sign, but none will be given it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a huge fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will stand up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and now something greater than Jonah is here. Jonah went to Nineveh. He didn't do signs and wonders. He just walked through town and said, the Lord's going to destroy this place. And the people were convicted by the word. And that conviction was strong enough that they repented. Yet here now is Jesus the one who is to come, the Son of God, he's on the earth, and all they can do is keep peppering him with questions and keep saying, show us signs. And as terrible as that is, let's stop and be honest with ourselves. Do we not do the same thing? How many times has God made it obvious to us? And yet again and again we come back. Show us a sign, show us a sign. What role do miracles play in faith? Do we need them in order to believe? Can we expect them? Should we ever expect them? This issue will play out throughout the book of John and throughout some of the discussions. And in John chapter 10, we find these words in, in one of Jesus' encounters. And we'll spend more time on this later, but, but just to give you a little look ahead here, John chapter 10, verse 37. Do not believe me unless I do the works of my Father. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. Jesus is desperate saying, listen, you guys, you're not believing. You're doubting me. But look at what I'm doing. It is what the Father has sent me to do. There's another point in John chapter 14. Verses 11 and 12. Believe me when I say that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. Or at least believe on the evidence of the works themselves. Now here's, catch this verse. Very truly, verse 12. I tell you, whoever believes in me will do the works I have been doing. And they will do even greater things than these because I am going to the Father. Now when we read something like that, we, we, it seems what our minds immediately go to the notion of miracles... But are those the greatest works? Are there not an endless number of works that God has put in our hands to do to reveal the Father to the world that we can do at any time that, that are not in and of themselves miraculous works except in the fact that they demonstrate we have laid, us off, we have laid aside selfishness and have done what God has called us to do. 
By this shall all men know you are my disciples, by your love for one another. Could be, there be a greater miracle than the people of the church loving one another? How important are signs and wonders at establishing truth? Well, this is an interesting passage, Deuteronomy chapter 13, that speaks to this issue of signs and wonders. Deuteronomy chapter 13, beginning in verse 1, If a prophet or one who foretells by dreams appears among you and announces to you a sign or wonder, and if the sign or wonder spoken of takes place... And the prophet says, let us follow other gods, gods you have not known, and let us worship them. You must not listen to the words of the prophet or the dreamer. The Lord your God is testing you to find out whether you love him with all your heart and with all your soul. It is the Lord your God you must follow and you must, and you must revere, keep his commands and hold him and, and obey him, serve him and hold fast to him. The suggestion of this passage in Deuteronomy is signs and wonders alone are not enough to prove truth. Truth is centered in the Word of God, in hearing and believing. He who has an ear, let him hear. It's the conviction of the Holy Spirit on the heart of the believer. And in that moment, this royal official felt the conviction and believed the word that Jesus had spoken. Are you good at believing what Jesus has said? Let's finish the story. John 4, verse 50. Go, Jesus replied, your son will live. The man took Jesus at his word and departed. While he was still on the way, his servants met him with the news that his boy was living. When he inquired as to the time when his son got better, they said to him, Yesterday, at one in the afternoon, the fever left him. Then the father realized that this was the exact time at which Jesus had said to him, Your son will live. So he and his whole household believed. This was the second sign Jesus performed after coming from Judea to Galilee. What will it take for you to believe? I've mentioned Ellen White and the Desire of Ages in this, and I want to read to you some of the words that come from near the end of this section on this passage. It's from Desire of Ages, page 200. He who blessed the nobleman of Capernaum is just as desirous of blessing us. But like the afflicted father, we are often led to seek Jesus by the desire for some earthly good. And upon the granting of our request, we rest our confidence in his love. I'm going to believe he loves me if he does the thing I'm asking. The Savior longs to give us a greater blessing than we ask. And he delays the answer to our request that he may show us the evil of our own hearts and our deep need of his grace. He desires us to renounce the selfishness that leads us to seek him, confessing our helplessness and bitter need, we are to trust ourselves wholly to his love. The nobleman wanted to see the fulfillment of his prayer before he should believe. But he had to accept the word of Jesus 
that his request was heard and the blessing granted. This lesson we also have to learn. Not because we see or feel that God hears us are we to believe. We are to trust in his promises. When we come to him in faith, every petition enters the heart of God. When we have asked for his blessing, we should believe that we receive it. And thank him that we have received it. Then we are to go about our duties assured that the blessing will be realized when we need it most. When we have learned to do this, we shall know that our prayers are answered. God will do for us exceedingly abundantly according to the riches of his glory and the workings of his mighty power. How many times have you cried out to the Lord, prayed, asked for deliverance? Because when you stand up, you don't feel it. You don't believe it. What this is challenging us to do is when we've prayed to believe that we have placed the most precious realities in the hands of a God who loves us and then go about what he has assigned us to do with a heart filled with the confidence that God will in fact do what is best. And from that standpoint, be free from the stress and the strain. One other text I want to throw at you here. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. On this whole subject of, of signs and wonders and what does it take for us to be believers and can we take God at His word. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, beginning in verse 20. Where is the wise person? Where is the teacher of the law? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God the world through its wisdom did not know him, God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. Everyone who believes the word is saved through that faith. Verse 22, Jews demand signs. And Greeks look for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. A stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles, but to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. Through the foolishness of the word, through the foolishness of me saying to you, God sent his son into the world because he loved the world. He didn't send his son into the world to condemn the world, but he sent him so that through him the world might be saved. Everyone who believes in him is not condemned, but everyone who refuses is condemned already because they've not believed in the one God sent. Through the foolishness of those words, have you believed? Because in the wisdom of God, through the power of the Holy Spirit, it is, it is faith in the word, not faith in the sign, not faith in the miracle. Faith in the word, faith in the promise that saves. So what petitions have you laid before Jesus? What are your prayers? What prayers have you prayed? 
Do you believe that he has heard them? Do you believe that he has your good in mind? Because if you can believe, if you can trust, and you can believe, you can live in peace, knowing that there is a righteous judge who will make all things right, knowing that there is one who is the resurrection and the life, for him, nothing is gone forever. Knowing that there is one who loves you, who reaches out to you, put your faith in Jesus. Believe his word. Let's pray. Father in heaven, speak your word to our hearts. Help us to believe. In Jesus' name.